Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Katherine Garforth from the Garforth Education, and this is the Right to Read initiative, where we're trying to spread information for educators looking to help their students learn how to read. Our recommendations are based on, or sorry, our conversations are based on the recommendations from the Ontario Human Rights Commission Right to Read Public Inquiry Report, and our today our conversation is with Judith Boxner from New York City and I'm looking forward to talking about the right to read initiative with her from reading recovery and beyond because Judy is trained in reading recovery among other things so I'm gonna take a moment and let Judy introduce herself all right, thank you. So I'm very honored to be here. Thank you very much, Dr. Garforth. So my name is Judy Boxner. I've been with the Department of Education in New York City for 24 years so far, and I'm still there and happily there. Um, and I have a lot of training in different methodologies. It started with reading recovery. And now my latest training is in foundations, Orton-Gillingham, what else is there, Hegarty, a lot of other programs as well as letters training. Yeah, so when we're talking about interventions and best practices, you really have a wide range of knowledge and can draw from a lot of different programs. So let's go, actually a couple other things that I wanted for you to mention um, is the types of students that you're currently working with and have worked with in the past. Sounds great. So basically right now, my current position is as a, as a literacy coach. And my main goal is to bring the science of reading and best practices into classrooms with foundations and making sure that, you know, kids learn those foundational skills. Um, some of the classes that I work in are ICT classrooms where there's two teachers and some kids are special ed and some kids are general ed. Other classes that I work in are general ed. Other classes that I work in are self-contained special education where some of the students may have more, um, more needs and so forth. My training is also in ENL, also known as ESL for students that um, are learning the English language as their second language or, or maybe even more languages. So I've worked with a lot of ENL students in my career as well. I also did a while back, um, about 15 years in the classroom and the grades that I mostly taught were second grade general education. And a lot of my kids also were ENL kids in that class, pre-K and I also did um, kindergarten. And then when I was in the role of reading recovery, which was back when there was the Obama I-3 grant, I was working with first grade students primarily. Wonderful. So you definitely have a good breadth of experience working with a wide range of ability levels and backgrounds in your classroom. So you can really help us dive deep into what best practices are for all students and not just those at the top of the uh, ladder of reading or Nancy Lund's ladder of reading, the ones that can, you know, learn basically by themselves or regardless of the manner right. in which they're teaching to the ones that need that explicit instruction. 
and the ones that have a very difficult time learning how to read, whether that's because they have English as an additional language or they have other uh, comorbidities or uh, diagnoses within uh, their, their profile. So that is great. And so when you started off, what was your training? What was your training looking like? Like you said that you did reading recovery for about. Yeah, so it was a, uh, it was an interesting journey um, getting trained as a reading specialist. It did start with reading recovery and that was probably back in either 2012 or 2013. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the biggest honors in my life at that point. That was the hottest literacy program. Like if you got selected for that, you were the best of the best. And I was really, really proud. I was trained by, um, a program at NYU Steinhardt. And it was probably one of the most interesting and best trainings I feel in my entire life. I know a lot of people watching might think, no, there was nothing good. It's horrible. It was where I really started to learn to watch my students and to meet their needs and and know that, you know, students with issues can make progress. Now, knowing that, I know a lot of my kids didn't discontinue, which means that they didn't meet the criteria for passing at the end of their sessions with, with me, which was 20, 12 to 20 weeks. And, you know, I look back at those days of having some of my students, especially my ENL students, kids that English wasn't easy for them. They couldn't really get a word based on meeting. You know, the words that they would see on the page didn't make sense to them at all. You know, they don't know what a rectangle maybe is in English or what a hamburger is in English. So I realized that I needed to do better. And that's when my learning journey in literacy really expanded. And I pushed myself to the next level. That lasted about four years. And I'll be honest with you, some of the practices that I learned there now, I know are not the best practices and I've shifted away from them. And I could talk about that later when, when we get into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think that's, that's great. And so when you were first trained as a teacher, what were you more of a, like a balanced literacy? Oh, that's an interesting question. That's a really interesting. So that's interesting. So my initial training was probably the first day I walked into a classroom was 1997. I was a teaching assistant. And then I got my first teaching job in 2000. So it's interesting at that point, And it was a long time ago. I remember what was going on. The world was shifting, or the New York City world was shifting. There was a lot of open court. There was letter people all over the place, but it seemed like that's it. The world was shifting into balanced literacy. Um, and that was the methodology that we were you know, teaching in initially. The school where I taught was not a Lucy school. It wasn't a workshop model. It was a modified workshop model. And we had a lot of um, people coming from like Australia, Aussies, they used to call them. It was, I think it was like a consulting firm and they would train us in small group instruction. And we all knew back then that we weren't going to drop all of phonics. I was teaching with a lot of teachers that had tons of experience. So when we closed our doors, we did what we needed to do as well. Um, and a lot of my friends that are listening know that we did that. We taught grammar. We taught contractions, we taught suffixes and word parts. Um, We even did spelling tests back then. So we weren't ready to really let go and just, you know, do one way or the other. But for me, you know, a lot of people say balanced literacy is terrible. And for me, it didn't mean terrible. It just meant taking best practices and implementing them, whether it be phonics and so forth. 
And I think what the problem beca became was a lot of people moved when they did a balanced practice and didn't have enough of that phonics piece. It wasn't a good balance. And that's when trouble started to, to brew. Okay. So at that point, how did you feel like not as yourself today with the knowledge that you have, but with your knowledge at that point in your career, how did you feel about what you were teaching? Did you feel you were reaching all your students and did you feel like you had the tools that you needed to do so? So, you know, it's funny back then, it almost seemed like reading was easier for a lot of kids. I didn't see as many problems. Maybe it was because I taught well, I don't know why, but I, I always used to break up things into small chunks. Like I would never tell kids write more and more and more and more. We would do everything in small little chunks. And I did a lot of modeling of what the expectations were. To be quite honest, I had pretty good results as a classroom teacher, but I was also teaching in a, a district in Brooklyn with, a you know, and now I'm in a totally different area. Now I'm in the South Bronx and I'm working at two schools. I mean, kids are kids and they all have equal abilities to do well, but I don't know, my data, my data seemed pretty solid back in the day, mm -hmm. but it may have not been as solid if I used the assessment tools that I use now. But there is good news. I see a lot of my kids are grown adults now and they, and they reach out to me and they let me know that they are successful. So I'm hoping that most of them are. Wonderful. That's great. Now, then you started doing the reading recovery and you knew right away, it sounds like. That I don't think it was right away. No. I don't think it was right away. No. The first two years, I was just like doing amazing work and most of my students were progressing really well. Um, I think towards the final two years were when the principal was deciding to give me kids that didn't exactly meet the criteria. And I would, because I think there was a formula, I don't even know what it is, but there was like a formula of certain kids that, you know, would do best, probably do best in the program. But then we experimented and gave me some of the kids that were the most struggling learners or the kids that had barely any English. We were desperate to support them. And that's when I noticed really some issues with those students. It wasn't for all. Some kids were totally doing great. Mm -hmm. Well, and that, some really struggled. That's the thing that I think we need to highlight is that it's not that reading recovery fails every student that goes into it. There right. are students that the amount of instruction they get in reading recovery is enough to get them to that next level. But there is a percentage of students who are yeah. not going to read, learn how to read using the reading recovery program. Absolutely. And it is a cost per student program with intensive support. And that's where personally, I see a problem. If we're spending 20 weeks with a student with pull out one-on-one -on -one support, I want there to be a progress for any student that I put in that program, right. not just trying to filter through which are going to be right. the best, especially when it's costing me thousands of dollars per student. Well, yeah, and I, I totally hear what you're saying, but I think the thought was that, you know, if a school had like two people servicing the kids and the kids did well, and if you have maybe 30 kids in first grade and you serviced up like 16 of those kids somehow, that, you know, that it would be an expense in the beginning, but the hope was that it wouldn't be a long-term expense that they would need like 
12 years of special education. That was the hope. So the intention was very good. Oh, of course. And I'm not saying that it wasn't. Right. Like, I think a lot of people feel that everything's bad. Right. About reading recovery. And it's not. Right. And Uh, we could talk about that in in a little bit of depth about specific shifts that I made and what was good and what was not good. Yeah. Um, but I, I, again, that cost per student yeah. is bad. <laughs> uh, Absolutely. My, and that's and why I, a lot of us got cut. That was a, yeah. lot, a lot of principals started saying, Hey, it's too expensive. It's time to move on. Yeah. And I think that's one of the key features of any intervention program, uh, that's inhibiting is the cost. And I understand you know, the bottom line for the, the programs and the creators is wanting mm-hmm. to make money from it. But at some point it's like, well, you know what, this is for the good of the children and we need to create products or interventions that once an educator is trained in the intervention, they right. can use their tools and resources that they've learned on any student mm-hmm. without having to pay that additional per student cost. Right. Like, yes, yes, there's, you know, photocopying fees or material fees, which are understandable um, because, you know, paper's not free uh, and ink's not free. Um, but if we're, we're charging based on knowledge, that's leaving out a, a lot of students and, you know, those schools in, in the poorer areas that don't have access to it, that's that's where my problem lies. Yeah. Okay. So after your four years of reading recovery, you started making a shift. Now, how did that shift start happening? Did it start with Orton Gillingham or was it one of the other programs you mentioned? So the shift started with, um, I was cut from reading recovery. The principal decided it was not the way that we want to continue. And I was offered an AIS position However, I knew for me, it was time for professional growth. So I applied to be on the universal literacy team in New York City, led by Andrew Fletcher. And it was a game changer in my career. I was petrified. I didn't want to go. I was like, oh, my God, I can't do this. Um, Yeah, but it was a game changer in my career. And I feel I'm so much more capable now as a literacy specialist to help people, to help teachers and children and I've been able to mesh my literacy approaches to really focus on best practices and helping move the work forward. Wonderful. So we had that initial training. How did that make changes with the students that you were working with? And when did you decide to, to look further? So when I started on the um, universal literacy team, I really realized that their vision was a little bit different than what I had been trained in. And I went into it with an open mind and we met all the top literacy specialists at that point that supported the science. Um, Anita Archer would come to our presentations. Wiley Blevins would be there. Uh, Tim Shanahan came to a couple. Um, It was just incredible. And then I started to listen and I'm like, all right, maybe I should listen some more. Maybe I should listen some more. 
And then one of my supervisors came to my school to visit me, to give me a coaching support visit. And there was a foundations box. And um, at that point I was very scared because I was so busy doing reading recovery. I didn't really have time to do foundations. And she said, Judy, have you opened the box? And I said, no. And she said, you should really think about opening that box. But at that point I was very fearful, but she planted the seed and her name was Brenda Thomas. She planted that seed and I opened the box and I fell in love with foundations. Um, my, my colleague, Jill Italiano and I, we just fell in love with foundations and we're like, we got to do this. We wanted to help the whole city on a large scale, use the foundations data tracker. The program made sense. And that's where a lot of my learning started to happen. I didn't really know the syllable types until I started to play with foundations. I'm like, Hmm. So I've been teaching kids how to decode for so many years, but I don't even know how words work. I better learn this and learn it well. And once I embraced this program and my other supervisor, Greg would, Greg would come over and see me, Greg Savitz would come see me in action. And he made sure that I did the program with fidelity. We tracked the data in something called a reteach tracker, which saw the tier one data on the first attempt. We looked at trouble spots. And then we retaught trouble spots if needed to the entire class, or we would shift to tier two small group instruction. And boom, here I was in the South Bronx. Some of the schools had low data. Like we started out with like um, um, like uh thirty five percent pass rates, and then we would shift to like eight seventy five eighty. And the the screen initially was color coded. It would be red because kids were struggling. And then all of a sudden we would shift the data and it was like, wonderful, it does it for you. The screen would be green. And the other thing that we did um, as a team, universal literacy team and a lot of us coaches, we made sure that we didn't move on to topics until kids really understood it. We, we started to understand the concept of better to slow down and teach it well than rush through all the contents and not, not do well. So it all began for me with foundations. Well, and that highlights the importance uh, from that influence of maybe Anita Archer's work on the importance of explicit teaching. Yes. And making sure that they learn it because what we want in that whole classroom environment is making sure we can capture as many students in that net uh, so that when we have those more intensive interventions, whether it's small group, or one-on-one, there are fewer students. And I know a a lot of the issue that we have in our classrooms today is that we're not catching as many students as we could be with our initial instruction. I agree. And it it sounds, I personally have not looked at foundations. Uh, I know you've recommended it to me and at some point I will. Um, but it it sounds like, you know, that program or the screening and progress monitoring is hugely important. And especially since it has everything color coded, easy to read. So can you take a moment and just talk about what screening and progress monitoring is and what it looks like? So right now, should I start with foundations or in general, like speaking? generally speaking? 
All right. So good news. New York City has now shifted its um, data collecting method. We have begun screeners in all of New York City. We started it this year. Um, my, my, my department led by Andrew Fletcher was confident that this was the way to go. It actually started with somebody I also that came to one of our meetings now that it comes back to me, Noni Lasseau. And she spoke about running records versus screeners. She planted the seed. And I don't think I was ready to hear about it then because I was still very attached to running records. But it started to make more sense. And right now, New York City, we have screened every child using Acadians. It's fast. It sees what skills that they have mastered and which ones they don't. It also color codes red for areas of deficiency or struggle, yellow for areas that need additional support as well. Um, then there's green, which means they're on grade level for that skill. And then blue, which means mastery. Um, it's fast. And it gives you a real glimpse into who's doing well. It gives you a pulse of the classroom, a pulse of each student. It's not the end all and be all, but I think it's going to be a game changer in New York City. And I'm hoping that once they see the kids that are struggling, they come up with a really good RTI system or action plan. And I think the key piece that needs to go in conjunction with collecting data with the cadence is using, if you use a program like Foundations, not to just wait and teach those skills that are on Acadians, but teaching the skills that kids need developmentally over time, because then they will reach that. Yeah, so we progress monitor with foundations, a lot of us, and we have been also collecting benchmarks for Acadians beginning of the year, middle of the year, end of year. But if you saw a kid was struggling in a certain skill, like decoding nonsense words, you could progress monitor for that. I think the problem is not, people don't have a lot of time. Teachers are busy. They're overwhelmed. Coaches are overwhelmed too. But I think if we think of systems and structures to make this happen more efficiently and prioritize, we'll be in much better shape. For sure. So when you're doing class-wide screening, you know, it's recommended three times a year and that's giving you an understanding of what's happening in the whole classroom. It's a quick and efficient way. These aren't half an hour things. You know, by the time that you get the student get started, it takes about five to 10 minutes per yeah. student. Yeah. Even if you have a classroom that has, you know, behavior issues and whatever. So five to 10 minutes a student, and that's going to make a change in your classroom if you use the data. There's no you point in the doing data. these screening tools and just leaving them in that score sheet. If you're not going to pay attention to the results and have it influence your classroom and your teaching methods, you're not going to see the progress. Now, Judy was mentioning that you're identifying the students and the skills that need support in, and only those students in only those skill areas are we going to do what's called progress monitoring. So that's a brief screener or a brief measure intermittently while you're working with the student one-on-one -on -one or in small group to make sure what you're doing is working. That's and right. if it isn't, you're able to change and modify instead of spending, you know, the, the whole term working on one set of skills and realizing at the end of the term that you're getting nowhere. So you've just wasted that time right. for that student. 
when there could have been something more effective for them during that time period. And I think everyone realizes how precious the time that you have in a classroom is. Um, There's so much that you need to fit in. And while it seems like screening and progress monitoring is just adding to the pile, I'd argue that when done effectively and with experience, you can make it so it lessens your load as a teacher because you're able to recognize the areas that you need to focus on. And when you start seeing those progress and those colors changing to have that positive effect, it's really rewarding. And we're not expecting teachers to do these things on their own. There are people out there that can help you learn how to do the screening and the progress monitoring. And for you to ask saying, look, I I see this, but I'm not sure what I should do. Well, there's people that, that can help you on that and make the difference. Now, the reason why we're doing it a couple times throughout the year is that what we're looking at for the student changes as they make their way through the grades. So they may be strong at those beginning skills, but they kind of plateaued and not made the next jump to the next level. So continually screening means that we're going to catch the kids that weren't able to make that next jump in their learning. Absolutely. All right. So screening is important. I think that we can agree on that. A thousand percent. I think it's a game changer. It definitely is a game changer and it's worth the time and effort. Now that you've done the screening, you need to know what to do with the results and how to interpret them. And again, that's something that can be taught and supported. One thing that I think it's important for all teachers to understand is the simple view of reading. And this has been around since the 1980s. And Tumner and Goff proposed a simple view of reading, which is that reading comprehension, which is the end goal of reading, Mm -hmm. is a product of word recognition and language comprehension. So when we're looking at students, we want to make sure that they are strong in both word recognition and language comprehension. Now, basically what that's saying is that they need to be able to read the word, decode the word. There's some, you know, there's different terms that that's gone by, but we want them to have the skills to read the word and Mm -hmm. get it so it's orthographically mapped or have that automaticity so they can recognize it within a fraction of a second, because then they're able to focus on understanding what they read. Now to understand what they read, they need to have the language comprehension. And that is separate from being able to read the text. They need to be able to understand what they're reading. And that looks at the vocabulary and understanding of the spoken language. So when we work with those English as an initial language learners, that's where we can see some problem areas. Mm -hmm. Now, especially when we start looking at the older grades, a lot of educators just assume that their students can do the reading and say that they have a comprehension problem. But when we look back, we actually realize that, well, no, they're not fluent readers and they don't have the strategies that they need to read the words. Is that consistent with what you've been seeing? 
A thousand percent. I think that that was one of the biggest shifts I made. So even kids that were older, um, I think for a long time, there was an over-reliance at using picture cues. I have totally shifted away from that. I understand why the pictures are there and I do love pictures for different reasons. But I think a lot of students were trained to look at pictures initially and then look at words. And I've shifted where I you know, make, make it a priority to scan the word and see what you see in either foundations or in, or in Gillingham training, which I have as well and slide through the word at points of difficulty. The one thing I don't like though, I do see kids doing it, even in older grades that are struggling. Some kids learn to tap while they're reading and that it's not in my opinion, a good practice because that takes their eyes off of visual print. So we've been working a lot on that. And I myself, um, I finished Orton Gillingham training in April and they really get down and dirty with the uh, decoding skills with drawing the little bridge and finding your vowels. And you know what, probably some of my kids won't need that, but at least I have that in my tool belt to help kids to code better. And I think, you know, it's not too late to teach any age group, you know, how syllables work and how words work because it's not as tricky as we think it is. And not every word for a while we called words, sight words, trick words, but there were many parts that we do know in words. So, you know, I'm shifting and a lot of my teachers are shifting where we're capitalizing on the known, like even a word like the, if they learned the TH, wow, let's celebrate that. That's a known part. And if you make that sound or remember that the only missing letter is the E with your orthographic mapping, you're in better shape. So I think that's a key skill that a lot of kids need. I have seen eighth graders that can't read. I saw it. I was uh, redeployed into middle school for a little while at some point in my journey. And, and that's hard. I think one of the hard things with older kids is, you know, it, you have to make sure you choose books that are appropriate because a lot of our learning to read books are not appropriate for older kids. So that's another journey I'm exploring. Well, they may um, be appropriate yeah. for their reading level, but not their comprehension right. level and being felt like right. they're baby and stupid. That doesn't help. Right. That's that why way. I think the shift is going, uh, there's a big movement against leveling level libraries and shifting into decodables for a lot of our students. Um, some schools are shifting into only decodables for kids until they learn how to read. Some schools are doing some decodables and um, some level text. And, you know, for a long time, I was in love with level text. I still have them. I'm not throwing them out, but I can see some issue with some of them because um, there's a book in Fontes and Pinnell that teaches kids, you know, it's I can run or I can dance and the kids are like this and all the kids say ballet because they're basing their answer on the picture. So that makes it a little harder, but some of the stories are great. Some of them, you know, once a kid is reading, I just make best decisions that are student-centered for when students need. And I'm really confident that, you know, my shifts, my personal shifts are going to benefit a lot of children and teachers. But I'm not a my way or the highway kind of person. I'm just not. I'm open a little bit. Well, and I think as an educator, you have to be willing to be that lifelong work learner and realize that there are going to be students that come across uh, you come across throughout the years that are going to make you challenge and really question what you've learned and what you've believed, because I mean, unless you're, you're teaching at a private school where the students are screened and selected 
for their abilities, you're not mm-hmm. going to have that consistency. That's true. All right. So what I want to do is I want you to, we're going to go through the different trainings that you've done and you're going to list the, the pros and cons and think about what you think your best takeaways are for someone in that program and what you'd say for them to where they should go next. Oh, wow. On where they should go next. What do you mean by that? Well, um, I think it's pretty to learn. Yeah. I think it's pretty common to say that there is no one program that's going to teach all students how to read. And so if say someone is, uh, you know, reading recovery trained, okay. You know, your next best step is this, uh, for someone who is Orton Gillingham trained or letters trained or foundations trained or Hagerty trained, you know, there, there are good elements in all of these programs. We're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Right. Um, and I think it's important to highlight, especially when you have a, a, a teacher that isn't, you know, you've been using Fontes and Pinnell their whole career and they're like, but I've taught students how to read. I, I know I have. You can't just say, well, it's wrong, all wrong. You can't do it that way anymore. You have to acknowledge the strong points That's and right. it's like sta- that sandwich that you want to do, right? You want the good, the bad, and the good. Right. Uh, so, so let's talk about those. So, you know, you're first talking about the balanced literacy in the whole language. What do you think are the, the pros and the cons of those programs? And it's not a specific program that we're focusing on, but just the, the conceptual idea. Um, so balanced literacy, I never saw it as whole language, though. Oh, I, whatever. Yeah. So balanced literacy, the pros and the cons. Let me think. The mini lessons would be fast, uh, 15 minutes, five minutes, 15 minutes on the rug and then go back to do the independent. Maybe there wasn't enough time to have that explicit modeling piece to teach kids how to do something and do something really well. Um, What else? Also those picture cues, I was guilty of it. This is way before reading recover. I, I used to have a really silly song, pictures and words are good friends. They help you when you're reading till the end. I will not sing that song anymore. I made that up, I'm so embarrassed. But yeah, I look back to that and think I should have probably, that's what we knew back then, mm-hmm. or we were told is good back then making that connection. So that's for uh, balanced literacy. And um, I think, the best thing that you could do if you want to really become passionate about literacy is learn foundations. Um, They are super helpful. Some of my best professional development was literally like for two years, I would call them. They have a phone number and I could post it one day, maybe tomorrow. I'm probably a little tired tonight, but you could call them and they literally did PD for me on the phone. They have reading specialists or Wilson specialists that are willing to talk to you. And that was some of my greatest learning because I was, you know, learning something new is sometimes scary, but I think once you say, you know what, it's okay not to be perfect. It's okay to make some mistakes, but it's also okay to, you know, try something new is worth it. So yeah. So for my balanced literacy friends, give foundations a shot. And if you want to reach out to me on my literacy view, which I'm on with, with some other people and talk about it, call me. 
that's my biggest recommendation for my balanced literacy. And then I wrote down my other programs also. So, so we also have the um, Orton Gillingham. So I just got completed my Orton Gillingham training in April. Mm -hmm. It was probably one of the most intense trainings. Those 30 hours over four months was not easy. It really put my mind to work. Um, the biggest thing that I can take away from there is continuing pushing myself on how to teach kids to, how to decode. Even they, they give you like a little cheat sheet on a blue piece of paper that tells you how to decode so, uh, words with two syllables, but also three syllable words. I think for some kids that might be hard, but for some kids that might be the game changer. So I'm going to push myself this summer to learn more. And um, I have a colleague of mine, not a colleague, but um, she's on the Literacy View, Faith Burkowski. She was telling me a little bit because this, you know, you can never stop learning and you need to listen to what else there is. She was telling me something about um, a program called Word Wasp, I think, and vowel flexing. So I'm going to learn about that as well. It's like where you try the vowel one way and then the other way. So I'm open. I know that, you know, there's going to be different learners in front of me. And I need to be prepared with a very filled tool, tool belt. Okay. So someone who's, who's in OG or Orton Gillingham, what oh. would you say for them to do next? All right. So this is what I'm going to do next. So I have a friend of mine that's ahead of me. She already did the certification. So she has a year ahead of me. For some reason, I'm petrified to do the lesson until I'm perfect. So my next step is going to maybe watch a couple of recordings of lessons or watch, watch somebody who actually does lessons. Maybe, you know, a friend will invite me in either via Zoom or in person to watch a lesson because I think it's important. Like you could get trained in something, but you could be so fearful. And I think a lot of teachers are that if we're not perfect, we can't do it. And I think the only way you could get better is by trying something. So hopefully I will try to do a whole lesson in the near future. I'll keep you posted. Wonderful. Then we have letters. So I'm deep into letters training. Um, and for those of you that don't know what that is, that's like the theory behind the science of reading and how the brain works. It's been super intense. I do it with my friends. We share our screen and we do it together. We're learning all together as a learning community. Sometimes we ask each other for an answer to help each other because the questions that they ask you are kind of hard. Um, I say look into letters. I know that one of my schools in New York City, um, the school is Ann Park. The principal has now attended some letters training and she's like, Judy, find out how much it costs. I want to get everybody trained. So look into it. But if not, I know Dr. Barforth even mentioned, I think you're doing something, right? Yes, I, I do have a course. Available. So there's probably right. So there's probably courses that are effective that don't, you know, cost as much money or are shorter. But just be open-minded to keep learning. Don't be set in your ways like, oh, this is the way to do what I know best. Be open. Be open. That's it for that mm -hmm. one. Now the other one is Haggerty. And I know Haggerty's gotten a lot of flack recently yep. uh, over being too much. Um and I want to hear your thoughts, but I may add some of mine into it if I don't think you highlight some of the my thoughts about it. Sounds good. So on the literacy view, we actually did our very first episode was about 
uh, phonemic awareness. So I think Hegarty has a lot of beautiful things to it. I think that it's scripted, so teachers don't have to do tons of planning. Um, I think it hits that phonemic awareness piece, which is really important. However, I do think that you could hit that piece in foundations as well. People are like, there's no, there's no phonemic awareness in foundations. Yes, there is. If you pay more attention to the sounds and the letter connection, there surely is. I think Hegarty is great. However, I think that um, the older version prioritized some skills that weren't, weren't as high leverage as the ones that research is finding. I think one of the highest leverage skills that even if you're using the manual and you don't have time for all of the pieces is phoneme segmentation. Like if the word is cat and being able to produce that sound, little kids sometimes have trouble doing that, even older people. Um, and another important skill is first sound, first sound fluency, making the first sound of words. Like if the word is big, make the first sound of big, make the first sound of tiny. I think that's really important also. I do hear that Hegarty, um, the, the company behind them is making a new version because they have you know, heard the latest research and so forth. So we'll see what happens with that. But I think like people focus so much on a program rather than looking at the data. So you, I think the key is that you have to look at the needs of your class, think about what you should be doing whole group, what you should be doing small group, and there's also other programs. Hegarty has a book called Bridge the Gap, which focuses more on skills that, that are more specific to what certain students need. Um, I also read Kilpatrick's book. I know he got a little heat, but I love that book. I think it was called Equipped for Reading Success. And it had one minute drills. One minute is pretty awesome if you could you know, prioritize which you know, strands of phonemic awareness your kids are struggling in. That's about it for that one. Yeah. So on Wednesday, May 1st, or sorry, June 1st, I am speaking with Nathaniel Hansford from uh, Pedagogy Non-Guard. And we're actually going through a meta-analysis on phonemic awareness. Awesome. So if you're wanting to know more about that, definitely tune in to that episode. But I think that Overall, the Hegarty program is great. It's a great resources. Teachers don't have to spend the time coming up with the words. Do I think that every classroom needs it from beginning of the year to end of the year based on their student population? No, but there are some classrooms that will. So I, again, I don't think it's a program that we should throw out, uh, especially when we're looking at that small group and one-on-one -on -one level. When we're talking about the true dyslexic student, one of the most uh, obvious difficulties is a difficulty in phonological processing. I have no problem admitting that I myself am severely dyslexic and phonological processing is definitely one of my weakest areas, even today as an adult. And I, I can do the activities, but still when I hear words that I'm not familiar with, that's where I struggle, especially when I'm hearing names that I'm not familiar with. I need to be able to break it down and put it apart, that sort of thing for me to actually understand the word. And when I'm working with students one-on-one -on -one and, and families for that support, I actually recommend using the Hagerty program and giving the parents access because on the website, they give you three weeks worth. Now, if we look at the research, 
especially in those early childhood education years, that's when we're seeing the biggest impact of having that phonological awareness and phonemic awareness training. And so I think as educators, you have to have it in your toolbox, being ready to pull it out as needed, but it's a great first step for a teacher that's just making that shift, learning about doing screening in those, you know, early primary years, and they see that their students struggle with phonological and phonemic awareness, grab the program, use it. And once you do that progress monitoring, you get that second and third benchmark and see that you have the gains, then phase it out. And don't feel like you have to do it in the order that it's laid out either. Just because it's written and scripted that way doesn't mean that you need to do every activity in the area. And there are other ways to incorporate phonemic awareness into your everyday lessons. So yes, it's a great program. It's worth looking into and understanding whether, um, yeah, whether it's right for you and where you're teaching. And I, I know that a lot of the critiques are people worried about students in kindergarten, grade one, grade two, who have mastered their phonological awareness and phonemic awareness, and you have them on the screen at that blue level, it's not right for your classroom. The green and blue level, if all of your students are there, don't use it. You know, if even 25% of your students are there in your classroom, move, shift it to your small group direction. Right. right. And I think also a lot of the research is pointing to uh, connecting sounds to the visual print yes. as well, to not be afraid of doing that as well. You don't have to wait. It doesn't have to be done only, you know, one way. If you connect it in your phonics where you're teaching kids the word cat and the tapping part is at actually before you build the word, that's also strengthening the phonemic awareness skills. Yeah. Another thing, oh, and I know we'll talk about that maybe on our next session, yeah. other little secret tips. I'll save it. Yeah, so, and I think, you know, you were mentioning earlier that tapping while they're reading words. Well, no, when they are reading connected text, we don't want them to do it. When they're practicing phonemic awareness and encoding, which is where we're getting them to actually spell the word at the beginning phase. And if they're struggling with reading, we want them to double check that they have a grapheme or a letter or letters representing each phoneme in the word. We want them to make sure they're the right number of syllables in the word. And that's where the tapping or having that conscious effort and making sure that what's written on your page is associated with what you're hearing in the word, especially when we're looking at those English language learners, or at least in my experience, they'll often drop syllables or sounds. So in those beginning stages, when they're, they're still not quite proficient in the language, we want to make sure that they're hearing every sound in the word, especially when you have to consider that all the sounds in the English language may not be in their first or home languages. Right. Absolutely. Great. So you are well-trained, well-versed in all this material. What would you say based on everything you've done and worked on. Now, today we're focusing more on the concepts because next Monday, you and I are going to talk about 
you know, what you use, your favorite tools and uh, and that's going to be drawing based on all of your experience, not just one specific one. Awesome. Conceptually, what do you think the biggest concepts are that you think teachers, educators, principals need to understand when it comes to that literacy instruction? Let's stick it to mainly the, the pre-K to second grade. Can you repeat that? <laughs> So those big takeaways of the concepts you think that teachers and educators need to have for those, the pre-K to the grade two grade levels. Sounds great. So I think that pre-K to two, it's time that we really prioritize the foundational skills, the building blocks of literacy for kids. And I think that from day one, if teachers have professional development, one of the greatest professional developments would be one that I never did in the beginning, but now I'm like, it has to start here, is uh, seeing the way words work and knowing the syllable types. I think that's a great PD to start the year. And, it, you know, I think it would save people a lot of trouble if somebody who's well-trained in it just shows them because it took me so many years reading this book, reading that book. And then I'm like, wait, it's in Wiley's book. It's just one page. I get it now. Why didn't I know this before? So I think that it's time that, you know, principals also know about the foundational skills. I know they're very busy sometimes. They're managing, you know, COVID protocols and a million other things. But I think as a team, it's very important to prioritize syllable types, data systems for collecting data at the beginning of the year and knowing what that system instructor is going to be. Because, you know, sometimes I was in charge of foundation trackers and, you know, if teachers knew the boss wasn't looking at it, some really did it and some did it, didn't. I think it has to come from the top, not because we're saying you need to do this. It's because the kids are our priority and they're counting on us and we only have them for a short amount of time. So the data we collect is not to make teachers' lives worse, but to make everybody's life better. Because if we know what our students need to help them and we know how they're doing, that's the best way to support them. So I think everybody has to be on the same page about it. Well, and I think the important thing to note is that pre-K to two range, that's when our interventions and our instruction have the biggest impact. So the sooner that we can be alerted to weaknesses and problems and the faster right. that we can get the support happening, the better off that student's going to be. A thousand percent, because they may not have a phonics program in third grade or fourth grade. So the urgency is very real for pre-K to two. Although I am hearing good news, some schools have seen how well Foundations is working and they're, they do have a third grade version. So I urge anybody that's using that program, take a look at the third grade manual. I just ordered it. It's intense, but it's good. Wonderful. Um, and I, I definitely like that you highlighted the importance of administrators, because if we're looking at the research, it really takes that admin buy-in and support going through, and it helps create that continuity between the classrooms within the school. We, I mean, my ultimate goal would be for every classroom to have a standard of what's expected to be taught in that grade with understanding that there are variations between the classrooms. But so many teachers that I speak with, they're like, well, when I get a new grade of students, I have no idea where they're going to be at. But if we have a general scope and sequence and concepts that we're teaching, like the syllable types 
or the phonics that we're expecting for that grade level that we do have in the mathematics curriculum, but not in the English language arts for the most part. I'm starting to see more scope and sequences popping up in New York City. That's it's happening. New York is moving awesome. at a nice fast speed. So let's see what happens. Yeah, hopefully we can, uh, others can take their, their lead. But that's when we're going to have the biggest change. And maybe you can speak to the teachers that you've been working with that have made this change. And do you feel that their stress load has gone up or lowered? So it depends on which school you're talking about. I work at two schools, so different things in different places. But yeah. um, for some teachers, they became so passionate about foundations. The level of stress is so much better for them because they understand the concepts now. So as they've been doing it for now four years, um, their level of stress has gone down. But there's other factors. This was a really hard year, especially for second graders, because second graders, because of COVID, had a disrupted first grade and kindergarten. So our data was a little lower, but they're all eager because they will not give up. And the priority will be to start foundations, not three weeks into school, start day one. So you have extra time to reteach, you know, those gaps. And then in my other school, there's a beautiful team. Shout out to Matilda and Samantha at Ampark. Um, they launched foundations with me this year. They did phenomenal work. And um, they use the tracker. Sometimes they had to reteach the stuff, but they're so into it. They fell in love with it. And we're actually seeing the fruits of our labor in our Acadians data, which is formerly known as Dibbles. Our pie chart looks a lot different than it did in the beginning of the year. So they're hooked. I'm hooked. I'm optimistic. And some teachers that may have been a little bit less resistant before are asking for help. So baby steps, baby steps. Yeah, and I don't want to place blame on any teachers or educators, and we're not trying to do that with any of this information and these new strategies and the recommendations and the reports and for better practices. We have to acknowledge where training was at when we were trained and what we were trained in and not feel guilty that we've been using those skills and strategies because it's what we were told to use. Right. And it's all about accepting what's happened in the past and that it can't be changed and not to have that guilt over for it or about it. But going forward, we can take those baby steps, making changes. You're not going to go from, you know, fully using a Fontes Pinnell curriculum or Lucy Calkins or whatever's happening in your school to fully embracing and following best practices based on the science of reading or structured literacy overnight. It's going to take time. Typically, it takes about three to five years. And then you have to add in the COVID learners and how that's going to affect everything. And we're still probably five or six years away from seeing the difference because even those COVID babies uh, at the beginning, their infancy and their preschool years are, are very different. I know um, my youngest turned three when COVID hit and her childhood has very, been very different from my older two, just because of the availability of programming and extracurricular activities and the fact that 
wow. we were trying to manage childcare at home while working. So she didn't get the same exposure as the older two with, you know, preschool classes and activities and library books. Wow. Wow. So we're going to see that impact for the next few years. And our classes are going to have a wide range of skill levels that we may not have seen before. So thank you so much for joining me today, Judy. I've really enjoyed our conversation. We're speaking again next week on Monday, June 6th at the same time. And we're going to be looking at your favorites, the tools and the tricks that you use and you help teachers use in their classroom as your role as a literacy consultant so that people can see someone with a wide range of experience and backgrounds teaching at various levels in various capacities, those tricks and those skills that you find really make a difference. Sounds good. All right. Thank you everyone for joining us.